0: Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary Worldings. Welcome, everyone, to another Thursday, another live talk version. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, Today, we are delighted to welcome uh, Linda Rio, who's a family, a marriage and family therapist, author, and a pituitary world news contributor. Uh, If you've been reading uh, pituitary world news, you know Linda has written, uh, I don't know, 50 or 60 articles, so since 2014. We've been uh, 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 delighting with uh, Linda's work, and uh, she's been in a couple of podcasts, too, so um, I'm delighted to welcome Linda. Hello, Linda, and I have with me, too, uh, uh, our, my partner and co-founder, Dr. Lewis Blevins. Uh, and then Whenever we get together with uh, Lewis and Linda, we have some great discussions about both sides, the clinical side and the mental health side, so I'm looking forward to that. Hello, Lewis. How's, uh, how was clinic today?
1: Uh, busy as usual.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: The nice thing about today, though, was it was a nice steady pace. It's usually sometimes a little bit of a, of a rat race with people calling in late and people calling in early and... <laughs> uh you know hiccups with computer programs and things like that but everything went very smoothly today everybody called in on time or early and it was just a nice pleasant comfortably paced clinic which is always good
0: yeah and well hello linda welcome welcome to the show thanks thanks for taking the thanks, time again jorge,
2: and nice to uh, i have video of both jorge and lewis so thank you for having me first of all and uh i also just want to make mention that uh, this last weekend, Jorge and I were able to actually see each other live at a conference down in Phoenix, and I got, I was really almost emotionally moved by being able to give you a hug, Jorge. Um,
0: I know. This was
2: my first.
0: <laughs> it it, it was, was so cool. Um, and yeah. to
2: see people live, you know, I mean, uh, po- uh, pre-pandemic, we never would have used those terms or it would have seemed strange, but uh nowadays it's uh this was my first live event with actual pituitary patients at a conference and i just the ability to interact (laughs) with people sit down over lunch there's so much that you can learn and and to see and uh it was nice just to be able to to more casually over dinner be able to chat with jorge and just kind of be normal again i would say so thank thank you for having me but it was
0: actually yeah it was wonderful. There was a conference, that we should mention, at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix and uh, also sponsored by the MAGIC Foundation. It was a very nice event. Um, so, yeah, it was wonderful. We did a presentation on, on pituitary world news as well, so it was great. So, Anyway, so uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. I, today, I thought we would uh, talk a little bit about uh, Linda's book. Which recently was uh, took had a ten year anniversary, right? Uh, since it's since it's publishing, uh, and I thought the, the, I would ask you both, since Lewis was a contributor, and I think you wrote uh, Lewis the uh, um, the
2: introduction,
0: the opening,
2: the yeah, introduction, yeah. Survive, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering if you guys could give us a a little bit of a retrospective, and maybe talk a little bit about how things have change if you've seen any progress or people more awareness those sort of things so well first of all
2: i do want to acknowledge and i and i think we did kind of in the the pituitary world knows article um dr blevins if it wasn't for you agreeing you were the first doctor to agree to this at the time it was a crazy idea to write a book about the medical the mental health aspects of a medical illness and um, I, before that, had really difficult time finding anything, and certainly even in medical literature, although a little bit, but virtually nothing in the mental health literature that addressed anything about the endocrine system. And uh, And when I first became aware of the impact of pituitary disorders, I was horrified that I hadn't gotten this in grad school or afterwards. It's just was nothing that was mentioned. Um, I I have seen some changes since then, but if it hadn't been for Dr. Blevins agreeing to collaborate and then obviously your stature and your name helped me to get some other contributors to be a part of a collective um, uh, gathering of information from different perspectives. Um, I personally love collaboration because I think that we can get so siloed in our thinking process oftentimes and it's so nice to have refreshing perspectives, even if they make us a little uncomfortable um, from outside of whatever you know our thoughts are. And um, I find it real refreshing. I, I love being able to hear other people's perspectives and, and learning more. And I think that that was kind of part of the book. It was a hard sell, by the way. It was a really hard sell to publishers because it didn't fit nice, nice and neatly on a shelf somewhere. It didn't fit in medicine it didn't fit in mental health it was like the, and the publishers would say you know where do we put it <laughs> and it's like kind of in the middle you know kind of it's both mm-hmm. and uh it,
1: yeah it certainly it certainly crosses over disciplines and, uh, and that's the special unique part of the book i think and uh, you did a tremendous job with that and launching that and getting it into the hands of some people to make oh, a difference
2: thank you and um over the years, um, it's never going to be fly off the shelves. It's not that kind of a book. Um, but I get comments from people worldwide, at least in the English speaking world, um, about how they've done a Google search or whatever, or they've gone on Amazon. Somehow they have found. Nowadays, it's most of my articles are pituitary world news articles that they're finding me <laughs> and they're learning about. But the book has helped. Um, bring visibility, I think. I think when you get a book published, Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Blevins is obviously an author as well. And it does help uh, put you in a different category. Uh, People listen a little bit more. Uh, It just helps. Uh, Whether that's valid or not, I'm not really sure. But um, but it it, it did kind of get people to notice. It's been very slow over the years. But I would say, uh, even just in the last few years, um, maybe the last five years or so, um, a lot more willingness on behalf of people, uh, professionals in the mental health field to um, listen to what I have to say and be more open to, to all things biological or physiological, not just keeping mm-hmm. within the psychological thing, theory of mind or, you know, about... Um, just how people relate, but understanding that there are many, many medical illnesses that can impact our how we feel. I mean, just just not feeling good impacts how you relate to people. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I think exactly. the endocrine system is a little more direct. But um, but anything uh, that affects you physically is going to affect how you feel within yourself, and then how you are as a partner, or as an employee, or as a parent. Um, it all impacts.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, your work certainly has filled a void and continues to fill the void of someone who has a, a curiosity and an interest in these uh, psychological manifestations of disease and how disease causes psychological manifestations and and how those can affect people in their daily life and their quality of life and inner relationships and things like that. Um, I. Um, I've appreciated everything you do it, your, your articles and your book help a number of my patients, as you know, I've referred a number of people to you over the years and, and your, your, uh, intercessions directly rather than indirectly through writing, uh, have, have been extremely valuable to a number of my patients. I'm ever grateful of that. I, I wish we had more people working in this field. Um, it, it's interesting. I first, obviously became somewhat aware of psychological manifestations of pituitary disorders during my fellowship training. We didn't really do anything much about it or have anything to do. And then the next stage, when I was in my junior faculty, we were doing a study on growth hormone and we were seeing that people's quality of life got better. They feel better, the relationships are better. so it was clear that we were we were impacting people's quality of life with like thyroid hormone replacement, which we would think more of physiological, Uh, disturbances, but the psychological disturbances we really started noticing with the growth hormone replacement. At the same time, I was at Emory University where they have a huge medical psychiatry program and, uh, and uh, and a med psych residency and a hospital and all of that where three floors of the psychiatric hospital are people there with medical psychiatry issues. We would get two to three consults a day and that they were seeing people with psychiatric disorders where they were finding endocrine problems, not just pituitary disease, but hyperparathyroidism or severe hypothyroidism, or you you name it, all sorts of various and sundry endocrine disorders. They would consult us. We would take over the patient, fix their endocrine problem and their psychological manifestations would go away. So I learned early on that there's a lot to this connection. But there really weren't any resources for patients and, um, moving through the pituitary world at, at, uh, when I took my job at Vanderbilt, where I practiced for nine years before coming to California, 16 years ago, um, after five years at Emory, um, it was curious that there still wasn't much going on and you, you may know of, I can't remember his name, but there was a, a therapist or a psychiatrist in Florida. I don't recall. he. He was a little bit interested in this field as well, but he really didn't do much or wasn't very visible.
2: Doctor Weitzner. Uh, for Weitzner, long my... yes yes
1: yes yes yeah. So he's, he was interested. I don't know what he's done since though. I haven't it hasn't been visible. But certainly when uh, when I met you and and uh, we worked together a little bit, it was just clear that you were taking this to the next level. And I wish we had more people doing the same because there aren't enough of you to help all the patients that need help.
2: Well, I completely agree. And I'm working on that. (laughs) Actually, even this morning, I'm working on uh, uh, connecting with some people in my field. Um, There's actually, it's not very well known even within mental health, but there are some um, centers around uh, universities around the country that do what's called medical family therapy training. And it's a lovely model uh, where the medical residents uh, and the mental health uh, family therapists actually do consultations together. They do rounds together, and then they will do case consultations. sometimes go into the consulting room at the same time. Sometimes the resident will refer to the the therapist who's on site right there. It's easier to walk somebody down the hall and say, here, here's, you know, doctor somebody or other, and you might want to, you know, uh, talk to them about what's going on in your relationship or your mental health in general. And, uh, I'm, I, I, see that, that building that, that whole, uh, process right now, it's mostly in primary care. Uh, but I think that those that are trained in working in that way, know the language of, I mean, they both know the language, uh, the medical residents understand the psychological emotional and relationship language. It's not so foreign, And then the mental health people understand at least enough of the medical language to be able to talk to the doctor, as well as help translate for patients. I think sometimes what the mental health we can do in my field is to help patients be a little better, easier for the doctors. you know mm-hmm. get better prepared. We we appreciate <laughs> I'm sure that. Sure you do. <laughs> In a
1: number of ways. We,
2: we spend more time. You know, we we generally have 45 to 50 minutes um, uh, up to 90 minutes sometimes with uh with our clients. And so we have a little more time to unpack things, to get the background and his history and then for those that have a hard time succinctly and um, highlighting the key issues that the doctor needs to know. The doctor doesn't need to know
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, your dog's name and and your next door neighbor. And, you know, uh, some of the long history, it can be really important for us as mental health in terms of establishing a relationship and understanding the, the real detailed picture. But I don't think the physicians need to know all that, but they do need to have skills to be able to, how to be able, especially if, if we're talking sliding into pituitary disorders, we know that sometimes there's brain fog. Sometimes the cognitions are just not there the way they used to be, or you hope that they would be. Organizational skills, the brain isn't just quite working very well. And then you've got a whole lot of emotional things that are impacted by the hormones that are not yet regulated. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. with a therapist, you can kind of help Even together, writing some things down, you know, helping people to know how to go in, how to be prepared for a doctor's appointment. Um, Meeting with doctors is scary for a lot of people. I mean, I think most people, their cortisol goes up a little bit, just even just going in, you know, for a regular visit with a primary care doctor. You know, some people are afraid of shots or whatever it may be. And when that happens, the brain kind of shuts down a little bit um or a lot depending on how much cortisol is racing through there and um and so it's not unusual for people to come out of a doctor's visit and go oh my gosh i forgot to say this i forgot to tell him that this was really important Mm -hmm. so finding ways to spend some time to be prepared so that you get the most out of those visits i think is really important
1: yeah there's so many different topics that we could discuss about, uh, you know, being a doctor and being a patient and the interface and the interaction. I've had a couple of different things this week that sort of have puzzled me. Uh, one of them Jorge and I were talking about just yesterday, maybe we'll spend a little bit of time on that, but it's the sort of managing patient expectations. We live in a world where people Google stuff, they go to social media, they're convinced they have a disease they come to us after seeing maybe two or three other doctors who said them they don't have a disease and they just know you know you're quote the fifth endocrinologist i've seen unquote and i just know you can help me they continue and you look at their mri it's totally normal you look at their laboratory functions they are totally normal And I, I saw my first patient 35 years ago and I sort of know what's normal and what's not. And you, you give people the honest opinion. I, you know, I I don't want to, uh, not validate your symptoms and your signs because I think they're real. I've never seen those with pituitary disease, but there's nothing wrong with your pituitary gland and your hormones are fine. So work with your primary physician to figure out what else this could be. And that's my approach to a lot of people who come for the final opinion, if you, if you will. So I was looking at my, uh, scorecard, the Press Gainey scorecard. They send that out every month or every quarter or whatever. And, uh, somebody gave me one out of five stars and, and they wrote, he said, my symptoms were not due to my pituitary disease. He's never seen these before. And that all my hormones were normal. I was very disheartened why give me one of five stars because I didn't meet your expectations and tell you you have this horrible disease that most people who really have it
2: don't, don't want to have
1: it. You know, they would trade positions with you any day. So that's and, and I don't know. How, I I'd usually try to manage people's expectations at the time of the visit, but then then you sort of get hit by that. It's just sort of not nice behavior on patients parts. And there's no way a doctor can know how to manage those things. And it reminds me when I was a child, my mother said, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I love constructive criticism, but I didn't find that to be very constructive. And and in fact, it made me think maybe I should stop seeing some of these patients who want to self-refer or referred by physicians. When I see laboratory evidence or an MRI in advance of the visit, there's nothing there. But my approach has always been I'm going to be the nice guy and give people a definitive opinion about disease or no disease if there's no disease maybe that they you know should work with their primary physician and think about a few other diagnoses or if they're disease i do know how to treat it so it's uh it's, it's that expectations that people have when they come to the doctor's visit you know and i see it on social media i i, I stepped out of all the patient support groups because You know, patient writes in, I went to see the doctor. They didn't know what they're doing. They they didn't have disease. And everybody's like, you go, girl, you go ahead and you tell those doctors that they're wrong and go find another expert and people doctor shop. So what, what advice do you have to patients who are sort of in this position of searching for a diagnosis and trying to find out what, uh, what's really, truly wrong so that they can interface with experts and how do people accept, uh, an experienced physician who tells them I think everything is fine when they're really eagerly searching for the real cause or the root problem of what's ailing them, which I don't dismiss.
2: But, well, uh, first of all, you know, uh, I, I think it's important uh, that people in general hear that doctors are people too, you know, and, and that you have yeah. feelings and you see these sorts of things. I think it's probably reflective of our current world where it seems like, it's okay for anybody to say anything, and it's the antithesis to what uh, I was raised with as well, Don't if you don't have anything nice to say, uh, keep your mouth shut, <laughs> and we've kind of forgotten about basic human decency and realizing that there's a human being on the end of whatever is coming out of your mouth. I hope that someday we can get back to more civility and more gentility without feeling restricted you know, I think sometimes the pendulum has to swing to one very extreme level before we kind of get back to another place. That's a whole nother topic, but at any rate, um, in terms of patients, when we're hurting, any of us are hurting, we want answers and it's natural to want the magic fix, the magic pill, whatever it may be. And I think, um, to some extent Hollywood or whatever you may say is kind of promotes the idea that everything can be taken care of, especially if you live in the Western world, you know, because we've got answers to everything and it can all be fixed and in, in a in a 30-minute television show or less, or nowadays it's even less on TikTok or whatever it may be. Um, although that may be going away soon, but at any rate, um I think yeah. that um I would give the benefit of the doubt Dr. Blevins, that perhaps and hopefully that person that posted that, um, after a period of time, were able to come back to center and realize that uh, that they're going to have to live with whatever it is they're dealing with, or have to continue the the search. Um, I think it's natural to want want and not want. A name or a title or a diagnosis of something, even if it's a bad diagnosis, Mm -hmm. because it feels like if you have a name for something, it's not so elusive. And that means that there must be a fix to it. Now, that's not true, obviously, but I think, but I think oftentimes people have that idea oh, if it's in a book someplace, then there must be a pill for it. There must be a a treatment for it. And, uh, but I would hope that that person it's part of their process. Uh, we would just hope that they would do it more quietly and internally. Um, going through any kind of a major illness is a grieving process. Um, I was just telling Jorge that, um, I, I, I suffer from migraine headaches. I have since I was a a kid. And even this morning I had to lay down and I, you know, it's, I spent many years searching and searching for answers and, you know, trying to find new medications and whatever else, and and you do it is a process of finding your place of when when am I just needing to accept that now I have to manage this? It has to be on my shoulders to to uh, listen to my body, understand what's going on, and do the best that I can do in conjunction with whatever the best current medical uh, advice or guidance there is. And sometimes, whatever it is today, maybe tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now, there's going to be a cure, but we're still learning. Medicine is still growing and learning. And I think particularly when it comes to the mind, emotions, we've got a long way to go. We're just at the very beginning of trying to make connections about what's biological, what's emotional, where does the line go and intersect in between um, and maybe we won't ever know. Maybe it'll always be a little bit of a dotted line. I'm not really sure. Um,
1: so- Yes, I'm, uh, I am. Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, 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 go ahead. I'd, I'd make the comment.
1: So I, I'm a member of an endocrinologist group on Facebook, several thousand of us who uh, talk about things. People ask for advice about patients. They talk about these sorts of doctor-patient interactions that frustrate them. and it's really an epidemic and uh, patients behaving badly as one of the senior physicians pointed out that uh, we didn't used to see that you always have difficult patients in difficult situations but it's it's incredible how the epidemic proportions of uh of doctors and patients not getting along almost like you know spouses partners don't get along sometimes and 50 percent of Marriages is in a divorce and probably 50% of doctor patient relationships should do the same, you know, but, uh, because if neither party is, is happy, why not find a, a relationship that works? And, and I encourage people, uh, who, who tell me that they don't have a good relationship with their physician when they come see me as an expert, find another doctor, or let me help you find the physician. So, uh, but the, the, uh, the attitudes that it's almost like, and maybe it was necessary, and it's a correction. Physicians have sort of lost their stature or the respect they once had. You know that, just as the police have, just as the clergy have as well. Uh, our society's is becoming um, less um,
2: less respectful and, cer- and, and less trusting,
1: res- yeah. and less trusting. And you know, where does that come from? Um, I think yeah. there, I think there are multiple sources that it comes out of, but. Uh, by the same token, it's sort of foolhardy to not trust a physician uh, or uh, an attorney who's been in in practice for a long time and uh, is trying to advise you for your own benefit. We don't have any reason to not be honest with patients. Some physicians may be the gaslighters who, but gaslighting is, you know, it's interesting. People use that term a lot. Oh, the doctor gaslighted me. Gaslighting, people gaslight for an advantage or a benefit. If, if you understand what gaslighting is, about, doctors don't have any reason to gaslight a patient when they say, I don't think you have a disease, you know, but I even had one patient tell me I was gaslighting them because I didn't agree that she had Hashimoto's thyroiditis, negative antibodies, normal thyroid exam, normal thyroid functions. And I was accused of gaslighting her, trying to tell her she doesn't have Hashimoto. Why would I do that? I'm just telling you the truth about all the data and conventional approaches to making a diagnosis before you recommend treatment. So I think people use that term a lot and uh, um, maybe it's the era where we hide behind our keyboards uh, and uh, do virtual visits. We're not seeing people in person and everybody's frustrated with the pandemic um, and, and has lost that touch of social discourse and intercourse and things like that, that we need to sort of be more mindful. Well,
2: I'm going to go back to just even uh, what I said about um, being able to give Jorge a hug. You know, he and I talk regularly Mm -hmm. uh, uh, online, you know, we talk usually every few weeks, but there was a difference about being able to be there in person. And I think um, as wonderful as being able to connect worldwide with people through Zoom or, you know, some medium like that, Uh, and the use of iPhones and all the magic that those do, it does kind of put a wall up between us and that human to human connection. And I think it may have something to do with if you're meeting online with a physician versus actually going in, waiting in the waiting room, uh, and and sitting there human to human. um, I think that I don't know. I think people would be far less likely to disparage somebody that you were sitting there face to face with as opposed, you know, oh, absolutely. So, um, I, 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 I hope yeah. we find a, a way through all this. It's still a little bit new for all of us in terms of, I think the pandemic um, has changed all of us in many ways. And I don't think we know yet what that is. Um, I told Uh, Jorge, earlier, I wanted to at least talk about the pandemic a little bit in terms of uh, from a mental health standpoint, we have all gone through an experiment. And when you're part of the experiment, you have no perspective. There's no human being on this planet, including Dr. Fauci, who is truly an expert in um, a worldwide pandemic of what we went through with COVID-19. Um, yes, there are experts in, in terms of the epidemiology and, and some of those other things, but in terms of the full spectrum of what it's done to an entire generation. And we are just coming, sort of coming out of all of that. Uh, and to various degrees, To for some people, it was a blessing. I think for some <coughs> pituitary patients, it normalized, um, their, uh, withdrawal to the world. And, uh, you know, many pituitary patients that I've known of or talking to family mm-hmm. members who don't want to come out they either because of physiological changes, uh, their body changes or, uh, feeling apathetic or just depressed or whatever it may be kind of tend to withdraw. And then during the pandemic, everybody was with, withdrawn. And so it kind of normalized some of that, um, Unless you were directly affected by uh, an illness or death of a loved one, I think many people enjoyed the pandemic because it kind of put a stop button for all of us, gave us a reason to take a breath and slow down a little bit. But now we're coming back out of that. And for some people, it's a big shock. Um, I've talked to many family members who um, are only just now realizing if they had children, teenagers going through elementary school, kids going through all that, the impact of trying to live together, go to school together, 24 hours together. And um, some relationships uh, didn't last because of that. Some of them got stronger, but I think that it's important for a very long time for us just to kind of look back and in some ways pat ourselves on the, the, the shoulder saying, yay, we, we collectively got through that. It was huge, as well as, wow, Mm -hmm. what did we go through and how did all of that affect us emotionally, socially, relationship wise? Um, Some of us have forgotten how to be social. I mean, really social. You know, um, I've had to dust off some of my clothes in the closet because they have just sat, hang there because most of us were wearing sweatpants and whatever else for the last three years. And and, uh, there's some people I look at and I think, Mm, they, they probably need to look at some of the clothes and see what they I think some things belong at home and they don't belong out in the street, but we're still finding our new yeah. norm. And so I just think it's important to acknowledge what we've all been through and that our world is changed. You know, we have a Zoom world. Um, we interact differently. And yet I don't, our brains aren't, have not caught up to that. You know, biologically and evolutionary-wise, our brains have not changed in three years. You know that takes millions of years for for biological structures yeah. to actually adapt, and so um, we're still working on it.
1: Yeah, I think the pandemic required us to fast forward to what maybe way things were supposed to be twenty to fifty years from now in some ways. And I think it'd be a mistake to think that we're all going to return to where we were in 2018. Um, the world is a different place and we have to sort of roll with it, so to speak, and uh, take advantage of the new new things that certainly make life easier and different and better in some ways and try to get back our social interaction. I was thinking as you were telling me uh, about the, the fact that it sort of normalized behavior of people who are more withdrawn and isolated, socially isolated. It's true. I had patients when I asked them how the pandemics affected their life and they said, nothing really changed for me. I'm still doing the things I was doing before. I was staying home at first. Anyways, I didn't work or, you know, I was working from home to begin with and, uh, and it really didn't change anything for them at all. Uh, but ma- but made it okay to not go out and to not socialize. Uh, so they didn't feel like they were an outsider any longer.
0: I think the pandemic definitely had some effect, but I do think that social media and the internet, uh, particularly with what you were mentioned, Dr. Plemons, about um, you know people behaving badly, and what the internet has done to um, to show us, you know, people behaving badly or the or the news. So it doesn't happen with a doctor-patient relationship. Only look at the way people behave on airplanes. You never saw that before.
2: Never. Look at the
0: way some of our senators and and the congressmen uh, talk to each other, you know, and yeah. the stuff that they—I mean—it's just unbelievable. So I, it doesn't surprise me that in every every interaction that you have, there are people behaving badly. I mean, it's just—but uh, I—I I would think that for the doctor-patient relationship, that's critical because you have to uh, at some point you have to say I. You know, I need to listen. It's not just what I think. What other What other people are telling me? I, I was as you were talking. I was thinking about uh, uh, you know. obvious I was reading an. I can't. Remember, I couldn't find it, but I was reading an article about anxiety uh, being on, or stress. You know, the good stress that happens for you, mm-hmm. and uh, and some of it is good. So I'm wondering. Uh, at what level do you see stress becoming detrimental? And you know, do you see it more in in certain uh, uh, conditions, let's say like pituitary conditions? And how do you tell? You know, what's normal? Uh, because everybody that has a chronic disease will have you know increased anxieties and stress. At one at which point do you think somebody needs help? And how should the system? Uh, uh, Identify those people so they can get help. And the other question is, how do you go about telling them? Because obviously somebody is defensive in a, in a scenario and you say, I'm noticing things here that are emotionally not normal. And the minute you would say that to a patient, I would think that they could go totally banana, saying, don't tell me I'm crazy, you know, kind of thing. Uh,
1: well, you're right so, there. People do not like to hear that it's in no. their head or it's related no, no, to anxiety, no. stress or depression. It's almost like you've uh, caused more harm by saying such a thing. To yeah,
0: people. by trying to help your. Yeah,
1: by trying to help because yeah. physicians often want to help. And it's like we learn to recognize depressions. I think you're depressed. Maybe talk to your physician about antidepressant. They don't like that. They don't want to be labeled. They don't want to yeah. carry that sort of thing uh, where... I have to take a pill to, because I'm weak. You know, that's how they see it. And uh, it, it's a it's a stumbling block to treatment for a lot of
0: people. Yeah. Especially I, the come elderly across, you who know,
1: get depressed with their illnesses. They don't want to, you know, that generation feels like it's a sign of weakness to yeah. have mental illness. And it's not, you
0: know. Yeah. And I've had several confer- conferences, you know, when you, you get to talk to a lot of people, a lot of patients, and sometimes you notice that this person is, you know, struggling or extremely anxious. And I've stopped myself a couple of times because, you know, you, I, it, I mean, you can't say, I, I think you should see somebody to get some help. And the first question that comes, well, who the hell are you to tell me, you know, yeah. who to see? Yeah. Which you go, I don't want to get into that
2: I would say... You
0: know? but I, I could be no, totally no, no, wrong no, I, too, I, but, you know, it, it's a conundrum, it is a conundrum. Of, so to speak, um, no?
2: I I think the closer you are to somebody... Uh, you know, that's your place to talk more about how, Easy. how it's affecting you. Like if, 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 if you yeah. see this in your husband, wife, brother, sister, you know, somebody close to you, you want to bring up more of uh, like when you're doing this, this is what it, how it affects me personally. And what do you think possibly, uh, you know could be helpful or i'm willing to be helpful for you i do see a difference in the uh, younger generations in terms of that mentally and mental and physical health dichotomy i i think there's um in general and that's one of the positives i am seeing uh is that mental health in general is far less in the closet than it used to be even using those terms and uh, i think for Older generations, obviously, it's still, that's where, how we were raised is it, it was a bad word to even talk about anything to do <clears> from the neck up. Um, but I think uh, younger generations are far more uh, open to, uh, sometimes too open <laughs> in terms of some, sometimes yeah. the younger people are wearing t-shirts that talk about I'm depressed or I'm, I'm uh well, I, I, But that's good, whatever. you know,
0: destigmatizing. The, the yeah, the stigmatizing yeah. is good, you know, because when yeah. you talk about it. That's I think that's But I always um,
2: I guess from a physician standpoint, I I think in terms <clears> of <throat> um you know, you don't want to say, "Oh, you know, I think you're you're crazy," obviously, but I think that's what a lot of people fear. Again, I think less and less with the generations. But talking in terms of just um, the assistance of having somebody who might be able to spend a lot more time perhaps having somebody that just is your person. That's a, a really, uh, mm-hmm. I think of it as like, we go to the spa to have a, uh, a massage. We go and uh, people go and I don't know, get their eyebrows waxed or do whatever it may do. There's a lot of self care. Um, and think of it as just one more way. And it's a special way to have a one-on-one relationship with somebody that you can talk about with anything. And that's your person. And it's like you're carving out time that's really for you. And it's a way for you to be very special with yourself and um, hopefully to um, have some time to uh, understand things and to um, have a relationship with another human being that's very intimate, very special, but with real strong boundaries. And uh, maybe trying to reframe it as rather than that person's going to go and fix you because that's not what mental health professionals do, but we try to be there with people and help them on their Mm -hmm. journey. You know, kind of it's, I think of it like, um, if somebody's running a marathon, you can't run the marathon for them, but you could be on the sidelines, handing them water Gatorade and cheering them on and help giving them motivation to keep going along that race of life. And, uh, For some people it it, depending on wherever they are whatever time whatever they're going through sometimes not doing it alone (laughs) just having another human being that can really be there and validate uh, just really is very helpful and so framing it Mm is maybe just a way to do some good self-care for yourself
1: Yeah, you I know, like that uh, self-care. It's it's often said that you can't help people who won't help themselves. And uh, mm-hmm. he- helping a patient recognize that it's self-care, you have to take your medicines, you have to get your prescriptions refilled, you have to see the doctor, you have to see your primary, you have to get your pap smears and your mammograms or your your prostate exams, all those things. It involves, you have to you just talk to a therapist because they're trained to deal with these things. and. Uh, to help uh, help you work through different issues, and they are your your coaches and your your champions, and and will call you on your own things, and uh, and help you find uh, a, an easy path to, to success. Or you you brought up the stress issue earlier, and I, I think you know there's eustress, which is good stress, and distress, which is bad stress, and you know it is a sliding scale. The eustress is oh, I've got a deadline. I have to study for this exam or write this paper or, or meet this project deadline at work. And so that stress sort of leads you to be productive. And then if you don't do it and don't respond to that, it becomes distress because now you're gonna be late and your boss is gonna be unsatisfied or you're gonna miss a publication deadline or you're gonna fail a test or whatever. And I think that that, that to, to answer your question and from my perspective, that break point where the stress becomes bad for an individual is different from different people. And it mm-hmm. depends on their adaptive abilities and their, their their constitution and maybe even their genetics and how they handle stress and respond to it and deal with it. Because some people's stress simply shuts them down even before it becomes a distress. Just the notion that I've got to do a paper by a certain time can shut some people down. So the, the, the distress depends not only on that constitution and adaptability and adjustment, whether people have an adjustment disorder or whatever, but then I think illnesses and situations can change that point, that break point, if you will, if someone has an illness or if there's another bigger stress uh, in, in life, such as the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or financial difficulty, that changes that sliding scale. And then you throw in uh, another illness or the primary illness that can really lead to decompensation for people. Uh, when someone, one patient with the exact same condition, uh, an exact same biochemistry and size tumor would be doing fine where another person is really, uh, has a disheveled life as a consequence of that because of all the other things going on. And that's why I've always said that give me a hundred people, with Acromegaly, same size tumor, same IGF one, same growth hormone levels. It looks like a hundred people with the same Acromegaly, but it's a hundred different cases of Acromegaly because everybody's unique and individual and uh, you know, has friends, family, jobs, education, socioeconomic status, all this stuff modify the disease and also modify that cutoff for the for the breakdown due to the stress, in my opinion. Yeah,
2: I often talk about um, hitting a sweet spot. You know, there's a, there's a nice sweet spot where you have enough stress that gets you on your game, gets you going, uh, gets your brain firing, but not so much where you start to uh, lose memory, uh, stumble your words, uh, start getting freaked out, whatever your terms may be. And it is a very delicate balance and it is very individual. And I agree completely with, with Dr. Blevins that it's, it's uh, really depends on, uh, it's not any one thing. Uh, Usually it's, that's where you take a a long extensive history, at least uh, I do, in terms of, you may be, I think of it as standing on boxes, you know, and you don't, you never know by looking at somebody how many boxes they're standing on, (laughs) you know, and Mm -hmm. Uh, are, are carrying maybe uh, carrying on their shoulders uh, the weight that they're carrying, you know, it's, um, mm-hmm. whenever I see somebody driving down the freeway and doing something that I think is really not nice. And I really want to yell at them. I try to stop and say, but I don't know what it is. They're rushing to, I don't know what, you know, I try to imagine maybe their mother is in the hospital and not that it makes it okay, but it helps me to be able to be a little more gentle in understanding that you can't tell by looking at somebody. But it is one of the things mm-hmm. that um, people can learn oh, what's called mindfulness. There's a lot of different There's apps, mm-hmm. there's trainings, there's all kinds of things, it's a popular term these days. But it's really uh, kind of borrows from some of the Eastern uh, uh, religions and philosophies about looking inward. And really examining yourself and uh, in our busy Western world, we're not real good at doing that, but um, it doesn't take a lot of time, but it does take some practice about knowing your own level of where I'm going over the line, where I've gone out of that sweet spot, where I'm now starting to deteriorate. But it has to be each person really being able to look at themselves and with pituitary patients, I always talk about how, and I don't know if this is correct terminology medically, but this is what I say is, I think some, depending on your, your diagnosis, um, people are hormonally challenged or a little more hormonally sensitive than maybe you used to be because your body's different than it used to be. And a lot of people have a real hard time. They want their old body back, you know, which usually means their 20 year old body. But anyway, none of us is going to get that, but um, that this is the body you have now, whether it's post-surgery or post-hormonal treatment, which could be probably for the rest of your life is being able to look at where your body is at now and what can you handle? What can't you handle? And you have to come to terms with probably having to learn some things to um, help, compensate for that, to bring yourself more into balance, you probably have to have a lot more tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people don't like that. They would just want it to be easy. And again, they want their old self back. But, uh, some of that is that grieving process of this is where you're at now. And this is where do you want to go now to the future? Cause you're not going to get it back. Uh, and your body is different and maybe you're more sensitive. Some people I just find are way on the, I'm gonna call it dialed up level in terms of anxiety. Uh, Either some it's because Mm -hmm. of medical trauma. You know, they've seen 10, 20, whatever doctors over the years, it's taken them 10 years to get a diagnosis. They've had, you know, bad advice or, you know, uh, procedures that weren't particularly helpful. And, uh, and, And it may accumulate into, you know, have been very sensitive in terms of just medical stuff, but in terms of their own bodies, they're just more sensitive. Yeah, biologically. Yeah,
0: I think from the patient, from the patient experience, I think you have the, the word the word that you mentioned that is probably most resonated with me is adapt. So the sooner you adapt to the new reality, the easier it's going to be to deal with all this stuff that that comes with it. Uh, I, uh, Go ahead, I don't
1: I don't like this talk because my my, my knees have been rejecting my <laughs> overall uh, youthful attitude to life and approach to activity. They're saying, don't forget we're 61. My brain thinks we're still 25. What am I supposed yeah. to do? All this talk is making
2: me it nervous. It sure does make <laughs> you nervous. Yeah. All of us, I got to tell you, we're all in that boat.
0: <laughs> Which is... Yeah. I'm, And it's it's anxiety producing to mention
2: another word. And I want to go back to another thing that we talked about earlier because I'm watching the time and I know uh, this is fun. I'm enjoying talking with both of you. Yeah, Um, me too. In terms of a lot of the negativity that's out there and social media and bad behavior and all of that, I really think that um, it really boils down to each of us as an individual to try to come back and be as personally responsible for ourselves, um, rather than putting it off to the police, the politicians, the doctors, the therapists, whoever it may be bringing what I call that locus of control as close back to yourself as possible, which by the way is an antidote to anxiety is if, if I can focus on what I can control today that is going to lower my anxiety level. I focus on tiny little things and I can control those things and that can help us all. Mm -hmm. But I also would say that we can all be personally um, positivity messengers, I would say. Um, You know, smile at somebody in the grocery store instead of, you know, having a scowl. Um, letting somebody go at a stoplight once in a while, pick up a piece of trash that might be there that, you you know, rather than letting somebody else do it, you do it, post something positive on Facebook for a change. Even if everybody else is saying negative things, it's like, okay, what can I do today? What do I have control of in terms of trying to turn this thing around and trying to, I always think of, I want to leave this world feeling like on my deathbed at least i've done something that i can feel like i have contributed what i have control of contributing in terms of doing something that's better for the good whatever it may be um and recognizing that we're all connected as human beings you know what we do it it affects each other and so um we all anybody listening here or whatever we can spread messages about pituitary disorders in a negative way, or we can spread positive things. We can share, I learned this today, or this is a good resource, or this is a skill I learned, or or just reposting some of those cute, nice things that we see that might have some good messages to them. So I would hope that, yeah. you know, that we can all be personally um, looking inward and take personal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, and I
0: think that, and yeah, that's excellent advice. I I often think about the, you know, the internet, and we all, like you said earlier, uh, it's impossible for us to gauge uh, how to react when we're in this middle of this technology revolution, information revolution. And I often wonder if, you know, the world has always been the way it is today. We're just a little more aware of it. Because the world is in your computer and in your phone, and you watch more people, you have access to a tremendous amount of behavioral information—people the way they behave and and how they react. But I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, positive messages and being mindful of what to do—it's really good advice for everybody, <laughs> regardless yeah, of hey, what you do.
1: All right, hey, you prompted a memory of the start of the movie 2001: A Space Odyssey. You know, we're worried about. You know, murders and knifings and shootings and things like that. But if I remember, it's been 30 years since I've seen the movie or whenever it came out. Yeah. uh, That it starts out with a caveman killing some another with the bones of another. You know, the bone was the weapon. So maybe humans have always been like this, and there's always going to be murder and there's always going to be crime, and you know, but uh, we're just more acutely aware of it because of the media and the rapidity of news and things
0: like that. And we have to learn to uh, to deal with it. And we don't know because it's moving at a pace that is so much faster than we can actually react to it. <laughs> you know, I see it in our the work that we do with uh, with Pituitary World News where you think you have a technology figured out uh, and all of a sudden it changes. and Or, you know, the famous Facebook and Google algorithms that we all try to figure out what, you know, what's... Uh, <laughs> What's up and what's down there? So, it's actually a fascinating discussion. I can't believe we're getting we're coming to the end of the the hour. This has been so so cool. Such a great discussion.
1: Yeah, we Uh, have so much more we could cover. So we have to do it again.
0: Yes.
2: Hey, just tell me when and where. Yeah.
1: So well, I'm glad you two got to see one another live. I, I peaked my head out last May to go to an, uh, an AACE conference where I had to speak. But, you know, the pandemic was still roaring and I wore a mask and didn't hardly talk to anybody and kept my distance and things like that. And I'm peeking it out for another conference next week. And then I'll, I'll be able to go see my parents who I haven't seen for three oh, wow. years because wow. they, didn't, they didn't want me to come because they're, you know, uh, getting up there in age to the point where it's like, hey we don't want COVID. We want to keep staying alive. Don't bring that nasty stuff to us. You know, so I'll be seeing them for the first time in three and a half years in about another 10 days or so. Looking Wonderful. To trip.
2: Wonderful. Probably, Good for you. Yeah. Probably still yeah. wear a mask.
1: I'm still fearful of getting, I've had so many patients that a patient recently said, uh, yeah, I travel a lot these days with business. I get COVID every time. I'm thinking, don't tell me that. Yeah. <laughs> so, But uh, stay vaccinated, folks, get your boosters and uh, wear your masks when you're in public spaces so we can maybe see an end to this one of these days.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's great advice. Well, uh, thank you both uh, for uh, this great discussion. Uh, Louis, anything you wanted to add? No, not at the moment. I think
1: we're basically out of time, so uh, we'll resume another day thank
2: you for yeah. having me and, Linda, and continuing you. to allow me to to spew off from time to time on pituitary world news
1: <laughs> well oh, we're delighted great. that you join us it's uh, you're you're an important contributor to to this program thank you.
0: thank you for joining us you have been listening to live talk an exclusive production from pituitary world news Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.